there was a sound of laughter. In a moment, it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. There was a man marked with the scars of his love of country, a body active with the surge of a life far, far from spent. And in a moment, it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. There was a father with a little boy, a little girl, and a joy of each in the other. In a moment, it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. There was a husband who asked much and gave much. And out of the giving and the asking, wove with a woman what could not be broken in life. And in a moment, it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands, and kissed him, and closed the lid of a coffin. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know, sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon, freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, and their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds, We flashed our cameras. They had their fun, and we saluted them. They were good. They were evil. They were human. They are the Kennedy siblings. It was sunny that day. Life had been hard, but there were the good things, too. She had him, more of him than she'd ever dreamed, and they had them and the others were in heaven, and the missiles were gone, and that birthday was in the past. She loved him, and he loved her. The days were quiet now, peaceful, really, and the nights were warm. She loved him. Maybe things were going to be like her prayers. The proximity to one's family. It was never paradise, that's the thing. But it was her life and it was glimmering and glistening, and it captivated her, and she loved him. This morning, she'd had the most difficulty choosing which satin gloves to wear, and though the newspapers had mixed opinions, he didn't seem to be afraid, and so neither would she be. It was November, but the sky was the richest powder blue she'd ever seen. There was a sea of smiles shining back at them. Crisp air, balmy climate, Blue, pink, red, white, silver gray, burning orange, golden sun, 
then red, 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 screaming, black. If there was anything that the Kennedy siblings had learned from their father, it was that time was their most precious currency. So when Jack knew he was going to be flying to Dallas from D.C., to him, that was minutes he could be spending with his son. Where's John? The president asked Provy, Jackie's personal maid, peeking in doorways as he moved through the White House residence. Well, I don't know. It's raining and Miss Shaw does not want him to go. Miss Shaw was John Jr. and Caroline's nanny practically since birth. Go down the hall and make sure he's dressed, Jack told her. I want to take him with me. Rain or shine, that sun is mine. John Jr. clopped down the hall, clumsy in his raincoat and hat, beaming to go on the big plane with his dad. Jackie was coming too. She was late, but after killing some time and playing on the plane, Jack and John Jr. saw her walking toward them. This was a bit of a rarity. Jackie traveling with Jack on a campaign trip. She could instead be found wherever she wanted to be. This occasion was in a way penance for a trip she took just before. A trip that caused a lot of controversy, a lot of headlines. The Christina and he who shall not be named. The extent of that story and Jackie's relationship to him is in season one in our Bouvier Sisters episodes. Jack had no use for him. And neither do we. Right after Jackie got back from this lengthy trip, she and Jack invited Ben Bradley and his wife over for dinner, as they often did. It was on this night that Jack said, Maybe now you'll come with us to Texas next month. She agreed immediately. Sure I will, Jack. Then they joined Bobby and Ethel in the White House Theater to watch Sean Connery's From Russia with Love. Jack only lasted about an hour and then went upstairs to read. (laughs) Bobby, Ethel, Ben, and Tony all loved it. Had an absolute blast. And then Jackie goes, To be honest, I find such violence to be deplorable. Don't you? And this is October 1963. Oh my gosh. Interestingly, some people report that by 1963, Jack was completely faithful to Jackie. No, because Mimi was supposed to go on the Dallas trip with Jack. And then she ended up meeting him at the hotel right before he went to Dallas. And that was 1963. But if you remember, they didn't sleep together. And she said that she hadn't realized, but they hadn't in For a while. Yeah. Maybe he was maturing. Maybe he got to know God a little bit better after Patrick died. George Smathers remembers this. By 1963, Jack was about as faithful as he was ever going to be. It was more than Jackie hoped for, but less than she deserved. Which, yeah, meeting up with Mimi in a hotel, less than she deserved. But not sleeping with Mimi, more than she'd hoped for. (laughs) While in the White House, Jack and Jackie had an agreement that Once he was upstairs, he was done. He wasn't the president anymore. Not until the next morning. You hear stories of President Johnson waking up every 30 minutes to phone calls and see in movies his aides sitting at his bedside at 2 a.m. giving him updates. Not Jack. When he stepped foot in the residence, 
He was dad. He was Jack. He was not JFK. And you couldn't reach him unless Cuba was aiming missiles. Rita Dallas visited the White House residence with Joe Sr. on each of his visits, and this is how she remembers it. The First Lady would be sitting on the couch, outlined by a gentle halo of light, and then the President would step from the elevator that opened out into the living room. He would stand still, waiting, while his wife rose from the couch to come to him. He would rest his hand on her cheek and then take her in his arms in a quiet embrace. How often I thought, if the world had ever seen those moments, there would be no doubt that Camelot existed. Quote, He loved his children, Dave Powers reflected. Every night, no matter what was going on, he'd say, I want them brought over before they go to bed. He had breakfast with them and lunch with them. When there was something going on like the Cuban Missile Crisis, he'd go up to look at that boy. One day, the president was with some ambassador. Caroline was on macaroni, her pony. And he went and yelled, Caroline! She rode the thing right through the Rose Garden, right into the White House office. He didn't care. He loved it. Say your horses. Your horses! Get them played along with us. Please turn down the TV, Anne. I'm taking a nap. Rose snipped. Aunt Rose? Anne said in an excruciating tone. Jack's been shot. After processing what her niece had just said, Rose thought to herself, these things happen, it's not going to be anything serious. She said to Anne, Don't worry, we'll be all right. You'll see. Rosemary was watching the TV herself at St. Coletta's, as she often did, when she saw one of her favorite faces in the world plastered across the screen. Her big brother was in the news plenty, and she loved to see him in the magazines the nuns would buy for her. But this was an urgent message that interrupted the television show she was watching. This one wasn't good. Main event of the evening. Wednesday and half... At the Lafayette Hotel in D.C., Eunice, Sarge, and their baby at the time, four-year-old Timmy, were sitting in the dining room. She was downtown for a doctor's appointment and, just because, had called Sarge to meet her for lunch. She was 42 years old at the time and pregnant with their fourth. While looking at the menu that day, Sarge was called to the phone. Something's happened to Jack, he told Eunice after returning to their table. What? She replied frantically. He's been shot, Sarge told her. Is he going to be all right? We don't know. After a moment of silence between them, Eunice offered, There have been so many crises in his life. He'll pull through. Happily ever after. It was a warm day that November 22nd, so Bobby was compelled to invite two colleagues to come back to Hickory Hill with him, mid-work day, to have some lunch by the pool. They had had an intense two days of work prior. Ethel, of course, was over the moon to have her husband home early and to show their new baby off. So she asked the chef to prepare tuna fish sandwiches and chowder. Bobby took a quick swim before lunch was served, and then they ate their soup. Just as they were finishing up, around 1.45, the telephone rang. Ethel answered. It was J. Edgar Hoover. Her face became worried instantly. But when Bobby heard the message... 
It was far worse than anything they could have come up with. At the same moment that Hoover was telling Bobby the worst news of his entire life, the man cleaning the pool began shouting through the window at the others and pointing to his portable radio. The message was the same. The president's been shot. Oh my God. He's dead. Bobby said out loud as he hurriedly put his shoes on. Ethel burst into tears. Oh, those poor children. My brother had the most wonderful life. Bobby stated. The next thing he did was call his siblings. Poetry is the great hope of man. Don't be afraid, Dr. Tobor. Pat, in California, got a call from her brother that afternoon around 2 p.m. Eunice then tried to call her, but she wasn't talking to anyone. She wasn't taking any calls. That confirmed Eunice's fears. Pat was alone and not okay. Peter was in Lake Tahoe performing a residency of shows. Quote, He was returning to Los Angeles now. People wanted to be with others now. This was as true of the Kennedys and their acquaintances as it was of everyone else. A multitude of people descended on the Santa Monica Beach House, their next-door neighbor, a priest, two nuns, a psychiatrist who sedated Pat and other friends and celebrities, including Judy Garland. Reports, Lemur. But in the middle of everyone rushing around, crying, and telling their stories of Jack, Pat sat silent. When Milton Evans and Peter arrived by helicopter, they found her laying in bed, looking like a zombie. Milton, knowing that Pat and Peter's marriage was all but over, and now that Jack was gone, there was no longer any reason to pretend that it wasn't, told her, Lem Billings is on the phone, and he was told to fly out here and get you and bring you back to Washington. Oh, probably Eunice. I think so. But Pat decided otherwise. I'm going back to Washington with my husband. In New York, Jean was out shopping in Manhattan. A random woman ran up to her and asked, Haven't you heard the news? Standing next to a car, they listened to the radio. Jack was in critical condition after being shot. She then silently walked 20 blocks back to her duplex on Park Avenue. Come in your favorite flavor. Joan had dropped her two kids off at Jackie's White House school that morning to attend with Caroline and then was having her hair done when the salon manager heard the news on the radio. She immediately ordered everyone in the store not to tell Joan anything under any circumstance. Joan and Jack had gotten closer since Patrick died. Unlike the Kennedys, she always told Jack that it was okay not to be okay. So they knew it would be a massive blow to hear that he too was gone now. The salon manager called their Georgetown house where Ted had just learned about what happened and was trembling. Ted's aide agreed to hurry over and walk with Joan, shielding her from the truth until she was home. Once she got there, she asked her husband, What is going on? He had been waiting at the front door with tears in his eyes. Ted told her that Jack had been shot. He had been trying to call the White House, but couldn't get through. 
Is there some kind of national reason the lines are down? They're not down. The circuits are busy. Then it clicked. He's not dead, is he? Please, God. Joan cried. Oh, my God. Oh, no, poor Jackie. Not Jack. I don't know what's going on, Ted said. They agreed for Milton Gortzman to stay with Joan while Ted and Claude Hooten ran around the neighborhood looking for an active phone line. They found one while going door to door that miraculously was working. Ted immediately called the fixer of the family at Hickory Hill. He's dead. Ted heard his brother say from the other end. Ted ran back home, and as soon as she saw him, Joan ran to him, sobbing. She and Gordsman had heard the news on the television while they were gone. Not now, Joan, was all Ted said. When John Jr. and Jack boarded Air Force One that morning, that rainy morning, it was November 21st, 1963. They sat on the presidential plane waiting for Jackie until finally they sent a couple of aides to go get her. Then they set off together for Dallas. It was time well spent. Jack was doing this trip because the next election was coming up and he needed to unite the Democratic Party of Texas. The conservative and far-left members of the Democratic Party fought each other far more than they fought the Republican Party, and Jack needed all of them if he was going to win another term as president. So, he'd take his charm and charisma for this weekend to the great state of Texas. Jackie was again late that next morning to breakfast with the Chamber of Commerce. She wasn't going to go at all according to Clint Hill. Then, Jack told his secret service to tell Clint that he was insisting that she come. She was in the middle of choosing whether she would wear long or short white satin gloves for the day. She was choosing the outfit that she would be most famous for. When she finally did walk into breakfast, everyone lost their minds over her. She was wearing a raspberry pink pillbox hat and matching skirt suit. Quote, Two years ago, I introduced myself in Paris by saying I was the man who had accompanied Mrs. Kennedy to Paris, Jack announced, standing in front of the full room of nearly 2,000. I'm getting somewhat the same sensation as I travel around Texas. After breakfast, Jack and Jackie took Air Force One for a very short trip from Fort Worth into Dallas for their motorcade through the streets. Quote, You know, last night would have been a hell of a night to assassinate a president. Jack said to Jackie on November 22nd, 1963. It was an eerie trip. Because though all of the people they met were all elated to see their president and first lady, there were posters everywhere of propaganda against JFK. Just that morning, Jack had pointed out a giant ad in that day's paper, complete with a thick black border around it, accusing him 
of being responsible for imprisoning and starving thousands of Cubans and aiding and abetting American communists with a secret agreement. It was a stark contrast to head out into the motorcade and see thousands of elated faces, screaming, not at, but for them. Lawrence Lemer said, To Jackie, the motorcade reminded her of the presidential trip to Mexico City, where the affection was as warm as the tropical sun. Jackie waved to her right, then to her left, then back again as the car drove slowly through the crowded street. Then, the sky went black. The shots rang out like a snare drum announcing battle. Then there was the blood that confirmed it. They're going to kill us, Governor Connolly shouted. But Jack was already hit. Jackie dove backwards onto the back of the car, reaching for something that had been thrown behind her. Clint Hill was Jackie's security that day. That day and every day. He had been riding on the front hood of the car directly behind the convertible, carrying Jack and Jackie. When the first shot rang out, he wasn't sure what it was, but as he frantically looked around, he saw the president grab his throat and, quote, lurch to the left. He knew something had happened, but still hadn't realized it was a bullet. He jumped off of the car and ran toward JFK, but just as he leaned forward to run, two more cracks. Jack had been hit in the head. I've got his brains in my hand. Jackie screamed. My God, what are they doing? My God, they've killed Jack. They've killed my husband. Jack, Jack. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. He was slumped over in her lap, and the thing that she had grabbed off the back of the trunk a perfectly clean piece of Jack's skull. Clint dove on top of the car, risking his life, and pushed Jackie back in. I slipped when I first tried to get up on the presidential car. It took me four or five steps to get there. I grasped her, put her back in the back seat, and placed my body on top of her and the president. From underneath the weight of his body, He heard muffled cries. Oh, Jack. Oh, Jack, I love you. Jackie sobbed. Mr. Hill reflected years later. They gave me a medal. Yeah, that was very nice of them. I appreciate it very much. But I wanted to do better than I did. I had failed at trying to protect the president, and I knew that. And it killed me. The one thing that I would be willing to do or give is my life for his if I could have changed it that day. When they arrived at the hospital six minutes later, Jackie would refuse to let go of Jack. She was cradling his wounded head in her hands, and it was a scene that haunted her in nightmares 
for the rest of her life. Once all of the siblings knew and were on their way to Washington, Eunice felt the deafening absence of the one who had always been in charge, always knew what was going on, always cared as much or more than anyone else about anything and everything, Kennedy. About her tennis game or the culture she feuded with that tried to slow her down, Kicks water skiing or her debutante dress, the loneliness she felt after her choice to marry a Protestant boy. Bobby's deep reverence for their faith, his conviction to go tell his dad when he caught his siblings sharing a bottle of liquor in their mid-twenties, or what to do when he got caught cheating. Pat's Hollywood magazines, or who she wanted her nurse to be. Her life that got bigger and crazier and more painful than she expected. Joe Jr.'s football throw, or his unwillingness to allow someone else to fly that fighter plane. Jean's wounded pride when Bobby and Mary Lou duped her into losing, or her sewing creations, the one just like kicks. Teddy's paperwork for a four-year term for the military, or his summers when, though he was lagging behind his siblings, always had a friend around who was just his speed. Rosemary's pain and frustration of two being left behind. Or her bargain for a wonderful hockey stick and the new hair bow she was so proud of. Jack's books and stories of adventure and the one he embarked on himself. Their dad. He was always in the background of all of it. He was always listening, always affected by all of it. And right now, he was in bed alone, and segregated from his family. Out of the loop, and now needing her, the way she had always relied on him. Eunice grabbed Teddy, and they got on a plane home. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, help me. Eunice whispered as the driver pulled up to Hyannis Port. Teddy was in so much pain, he was mute. Tears streamed down his cheeks. It would need to be her that broke her father's heart with the truth she wished just wouldn't be. As she and Teddy walked into their father's bedroom, his face became confused. He was surprised to see them. He didn't know they were here. Daddy, Eunice whispered as she reached for his hand and kissed it. Daddy, there's been an accident. Daddy. Oh, Daddy, Jack's dead. He's dead. But he's in heaven. He's in heaven. Oh, God, Daddy. Jack's okay, isn't he, Daddy? Ted blurted out, Dad, Jack was shot. Then kissed his forehead, and they all sat in their mourning. Their shared knowledge of just how much had been lost. Eunice buried her face in her father's hands and wept. Ted fell to his knees, sobbing. He's dead, Daddy, Eunice wailed, knowing now, in her dad's presence, at home, she could finally let go. 
She let the horrific truth hit her and it came on strong. He's dead. Then, the worst part. Caroline and John Jr. Jackie was at the hospital with Jack. He was being operated on. Living and not living at once. She was living and not living at once. Mrs. Kennedy, your husband has sustained a fatal wound. The doctor told her. I know. Jackie replied that day, November 22nd, 1963, around 1 p.m. You always think of someone like her as being insulated, protected. She was quite alone. I don't think I ever saw anyone so much alone in my life. Lady Bird Johnson remembered of Jackie that day. She hugged her and said, Jackie, I do wish to God there was something I could do. Jackie just stared straight ahead. No tears, no nod, no sign that she had even heard her. After they got Jack's body cleaned up, Jackie was allowed back in to see him again. She pulled the white sheet back to reveal his face, and she kissed him. She kissed his eyebrows, his lips. She kissed his frozen cheeks. And she told him how much she loved him. She did not see the other people standing around looking on during her moment with him. The last private moment that she was ever allowed with him was already gone. The night before, when they slept in the same bed together for the last time. She took her ring off and was trying to get it onto his when a nurse stepped in and helped with some cream. Then, she just looked at him for a little while. Her jack. Now, still. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. Back in D.C., Ethel had called her kids' school and told the principal that the president was dead. The announcement hasn't been made yet to the country. Please tell Kathleen and Courtney I'll come pick them up. The nun, choking back her own tears, said, But you needn't come. Couldn't I make some arrangement for someone else to take the children home? No, Ethel told her. It's my day for the carpool. And will you please tell my niece, Maria Shriver, I'll pick her up too, so that her mother won't have to come out. Ethel was trying to maintain any normalcy she could for their kids until she could get them home and tell them what had happened to their uncle herself. She did not want them to hear it from anyone who wasn't family, especially while they were at school with no one to comfort them. Unfortunately, while on her way, their teachers heard it on the radio and told them. When she got there, they were already with the rest of the students and teachers in the chapel praying. Ethel joined them. While at the hospital with Jack's body, Jackie told her mother of the phone that Maud Shaw, the nanny that had been with her kids since Caroline was 11 days old, quote, should do exactly what she feels she should do. Miss Shaw didn't want the kids to go to sleep in a normal world and then be shocked in the morning by what was on TV or hear the news from someone they barely knew or even wake up to the sound of the helicopter landing around midnight and get excited 
expecting their mom and dad, only to receive the biggest disappointment of their lives. She decided to go ahead and tell them without their mom. When she told John Jr. that daddy had gone to heaven, he asked, Did he take his big plane with him? That was the last place he ever saw his daddy, when he insisted on bringing him on the plane for a hangout. Yes, John, Miss Maud replied. He probably did. I wonder when he's coming back, John pondered. When she told his big sister, it was much more sobering. I can't help crying, Caroline, because I have some very sad news to tell you, Miss Shaw told her. Your father has gone to look after Patrick. Patrick was so lonely in heaven. He didn't know anyone there. Now he has the best friend anyone could have. Caroline cried herself to sleep that night. At one point, it was so violent that Miss Shaw was worried she would choke herself. Finally, her little body gave out and she got some rest. At 7 a.m. the next morning, Caroline and John Jr. went straight into their dad's bedroom. Their grandparents, Janet and Hugh Auchincloss, were in bed. They stayed there the night before to be close to Jackie. Caroline walked over to the bed and plopped her stuffed giraffe next to her grandma. Janet was reading the newspaper when Caroline asked, Who is that? Pointing to a picture of her dad on the front page. Oh, Caroline, you know that's your daddy. Janet replied. He's dead, isn't he? Caroline asked, trying to understand. A man shot him, didn't he? Jackie laid on her bed in the next room, still in her blood-soaked suit. She had worn it on Air Force One as she stood, looking on when LBJ was sworn in as the President of the United States, taking Jack's place. She didn't have to be there, but she told Kenny O'Donnell, I owe it to the country. But what about all the other places? All the other things Jack was and all the other roles he played? He had so many of them, more than anyone else she knew. And there was no one to step into any of those. Now, there were just holes. She wore the blood-soaked suit all the way home, refusing to change when people offered to help her. I want them to see what they've done. And now, in her bedroom at the White House, she still wore it. That evening, Saturday, the day after Dallas, the Kennedy family and a few others all gathered in the dining room to tell stories of their husband, friend, boss, their brother. Many of these stories were heartwarming. Some of them were downright inappropriate. And somehow, Ethel's wig ended up being removed from her head, passed around the room, and landed on top of Robert McNamara. Quote, a man of impenetrable dignity. <laughs> I don't even know how that happened. Like, who did, did leave it to Ethel? Yeah, did someone else take it off of her head or she, was she just volunteered? She's like, <laughs> everyone sat, you know what? Here, she's <laughs> like, my wig. Milt Evans was extra quiet that night though. Remember, he is Peter's manager. He couldn't let loose because earlier that evening, he had seen Bobby go into the room where Jack's body was being held. 
throw his arms around the casket, and talk quietly to his big brother. Milt couldn't get it out of his head. He tried to talk about it, but in true Kennedy fashion, Pat cut him off mid-sentence with, We don't want to hear about that. And then returned to laughing. The calamity of the evening was that one of the people present was none other than the man who shall not be named. The chief of protocol had invited him at Jackie's request. Guess who had something to say about that? Definitely Lee. Yep. Also definitely Bobby. Of course. He was in no way, shape, or form a friend of Jack's. And therefore, it was almost as if he He shouldn't have been there. But Bobby didn't just kick him out. Listen to what he did. Quote, The following evening, Bobby harangued the magnate mercilessly about his wealth and drew up a supposed document for him to sign, giving away half his fortune to the poor of Latin America. End quote. That is literally the most Bobby thing I have ever heard. Unfortunately, there was one person who should have been there that wasn't. Joan. Yep. Because she's not a Kennedy, so I think think it's it's not not right. right. Ted. Pat. Pat. (laughs) Quote. For the most part, Joan would be about as connected to these historic events as anyone else in the country, any other anonymous citizen. She would lie in her bed, watching the bulletins and the televised images of Jack's flag-draped coffin in the east wing of the White House. Dejected, wondering how everyone else in her family was faring. When Ted had originally decided to fly to Hyannisport with Eunice, he told Joan that he would be leaving, and obviously she wanted to come with him. He told her that that was not possible. Let me help, she begged him. I know there's something I can do. You're too weak, he told her. Just go to bed. Take a pill or something. Oh my gosh, Ted. Cruelly, at least for now, Joan would be completely shut out from his grief and the family's. Of course, the other Kennedy women were busy and involved. Tara Borelli reports, Joan was left her usual, to her bed, her bottles, and the darkness of silence. Thankfully, soon, her sister Candy rang the doorbell. Thank God for cousins, and thank God for sisters. (laughs) Ethel was on the phone calling different Kennedy aides, updating them, and helping them make travel arrangements so that they could get to Washington. Eunice prayed over and comforted Sarge's staff at the Peace Corps headquarters before heading to the White House to comfort Jack's staff and then went on to Hyannisport with Ted. Pat, Jean, and the rest of the family helped Jackie with the funeral. Jackie was an artist of grief, adding exquisitely poignant touches to the mosaic of mourning. Jack's casket was carried on the very same gun wagon caisson that had once carried the casket of one of his heroes, Abraham Lincoln. Jackie 
Rose, and Jack's sisters stood in the rotunda of the Capitol when Jack's coffin was carried in to be placed there for tens of thousands of Americans to come and pay their respects. To say goodbye to their president and the leader that had given them new hope and compelled them toward more. More action, more decisions, more confidence that they belonged, they had intrinsic value, and what they did mattered. Eunice and Jean clung tightly to either side of Pat, worried she may collapse under the grief. Pat remembers thinking, If Jackie can do it, I can. Bobby and Ted had walked on either side of Jackie, escorting her in, followed by Sarge and Stephen. John Siegenthaler remembers that even Bobby's appearance told the story of his agony. Almost as if he had a toothache or that he had had a heart attack. It was pain, and it showed itself as being pain. John Davis, Jackie's cousin, remembers that, quote, On the day of the funeral, I had never seen such a destroyed man in my entire life as Bobby Kennedy. He could hardly hold out his hand to shake another. Rose stood as each person walked past her and said goodbye to her son, whom they all loved. She was standing in the dress that she had purchased for her husband's funeral. Here she was, burying her son before her husband again. The ceremony was beautiful, but Eunice had a complaint. The service was sad instead of hopeful, and Jack was never sad in his life. Jackie had chosen the passages of Jack's inaugural address in which he referenced some of his favorite scriptures in Isaiah. Then, John W. McCormick, Speaker of the House of Representatives, spoke. Any citizen of our beloved country who looks back over its history cannot fail to see that we have been blessed with God's favor beyond most other peoples. At each great crisis in our history, we have found a leader able to grasp the helm of state and guide the country through the troubles which beset it. In our earliest days, when our strength and wealth were so limited and our problems so great, Washington and Jefferson appeared to lead our people. Two generations later, when our country was torn in two by a fratricidal war, Abraham Lincoln appeared from the mass of the people as a leader able to reunite the nation. In more recent times, in the critical days of the Depression and the Great War forced upon us by fascist aggression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, later Harry S. Truman, appeared on the scene to reorganize the country and lead its revived citizens to victory. Finally, only recently, when the Cold War was building up to the supreme crisis of a threatened nuclear war capable of destroying everything and everybody, that our predecessors had so carefully built and which a liberty-loving world wanted, once again, a strong and courageous man appeared ready to lead us. Surely, no country ever faced more gigantic problems than ours in the last few years. And surely, no country could have obtained a more able leader in a time of such crises. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy possessed all the qualities of greatness. He had deep faith, complete confidence, human sympathy, and broad vision, which recognized the true values of freedom, 
equality, and the brotherhood, which have always been the marks of American political dreams. He had the bravery and a sense of personal duty which made him willing to face up to the great task of being president in these trying times. He had the warmth and the sense of humanity which made the burden of the task bearable for himself and for his associates, and which made all kinds of diverse peoples and races eager to be associated with him in his task. He had the tenacity and determination to carry each stage of his great work through to its successful conclusion. Now that our great leader has been taken from us in a cruel death, we are bound to feel shattered and helpless in the face of our loss. This is but natural. But as the first bitter pangs of our incredulous grief begin to pass, we must thank God that we were privileged, however briefly, to have had this great man for our president. For he has now taken his place among the great figures of world history. Almost as if he was created for such a time as this. Of John Fitzgerald Kennedy's funeral, it can be said he would have liked it. It was full of children and princes, of gardeners and governors. His wife's gallantry became a legend. His two children behaved like Kennedy's. His three-year-old son saluted his coffin. His six-year-old daughter comforted her mother. Looking up and seeing tears, she reached over and gave her mother's hand a consoling squeeze. Jackie had crouched down to talk to her son on his third birthday. John, you can salute Daddy now and say goodbye to him. As John Jr. raised his arm and saluted his dad like a little toy soldier, hailed the chief, played for John F. Kennedy for the last time. Jackie picked up the candle meant for her and lit the eternal flame. Next, Bobby took the candle and touched the flame. Next was supposed to be Rose, but she was so deep in prayer, Bobby passed it to Ted. 31 years later, Ted Kennedy would look back and thank Jackie at her own funeral for her leadership and strength the weekend his brother died. 31 years without Jack. She like almost spent a second lifetime without lifetime Jack. Without During those four endless days, she held us together as a family and as a country. In large part, because of her, we could grieve and then go on. She wasn't okay. But she had been the first lady. She had been his wife. And she was still their mother and their stylish big sister. And there were so many who still needed her. There were times that overwhelmed her. Sarge's assistant witnessed the horrifying reality take her over in hiccups of paralysis at the small service for family before the televised national service. But then she would get up and push on again. She takes the five steps to the casket and quickly kneels down, almost falling on the edge of the cataflick. Her hands hang loosely at her sides. She lays on her forehead against the side of the casket. She picks up the edge of the flag and kisses it. Slowly, she starts to rise. Then, without warning, 
Mrs. Kennedy begins crying. Her slender frame is rocked by sobs, and she slumps back down. Her knees give way. Bobby Kennedy moves up quickly, puts one arm around her waist. He stands there with her a moment and just lets her cry. At the graveside, after the family had said their final goodbyes, all the great leaders of the world made their way to the casket. Jackie didn't have time to talk to everyone, but she did say hello to two people. De Gaulle of France, the one who was very impressed with her conversation on the trip that Jack- I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris, and I have enjoyed it. <laughs> and the other person she made a point to see was Mary Ryan. Okay, this one, I don't know. <laughs> she was a distant cousin whom Jack had met when he tracked down the old Kennedy homestead in, in Ireland, Ireland with Pamela, Pamela Churchill. While Kick and the others golfed. Okay, that one's a deep cut. What is that episode? Nine. Nine. <sighs> that was a minute ago. It was Jacqueline who requested that I go. Jackie had never met her before, but she knew how Jack felt. And she felt that she should be there if she could make the journey. When she got the call, Mary immediately dropped everything borrowed a black dress, and hopped on a plane that was carrying the Prime Minister of Romania and made the stop just for her. She was so late after the long trek across the ocean that she and MLK were the last two mourners to be seated at the funeral. After the ceremony, Jackie found her and pulled her aside. She told her how much Ireland meant to him, and how much the trip he took just five months prior to this moment meant everything to him. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was five Five months. months. Can you believe that? five months before he passed. Oh my gosh. It was the one thing in his life that he enjoyed. Jackie told her. She wanted to give Mary a gift. She could have selected anything in the White House. Paintings, silver, china, signed photographs. But what she chose was the most valuable. Jackie gave her Jack's rosary beads and a set of his navy dog tags. She knew that he would want her to have them and would want her to take them back with her to Ireland. After everyone else left that day, the Kennedy family gathered in the Oval Office for the very last time. As they were standing there, Caroline walked up to her mom and grandma and asked, Mommy, did they love Daddy? Oh, yes, they loved Daddy, Jackie told her. They didn't love Daddy. If they loved Daddy, they'd never done what they did to him. Jackie stayed silent. Mommy, do they love you? Caroline inquired. Do they love you? Caroline, I didn't quite give you the right answer to your first question. They did love Daddy. Far more of them loved Daddy than loved me although many people love me too. But I don't think we should be so surprised that some people did not love Daddy. After all, not everybody loved Jesus, did they? Caroline thought about that for a moment, then suddenly seemed satisfied, smiled, turned, and ran out of the room. That night, the night of her husband's funeral, 
Jackie threw a family birthday party for her son. It was John Jr.'s third birthday. Then she and Bobby went back to Arlington Cemetery. Bobby stabilized her by the elbow as she collapsed in front of Jack's tombstone. And in a moment, it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands and kissed him and closed the lid of a coffin. Two days after Jack's funeral, Sister Frey walked into the Georgetown Visitation Convent and was surprised, even a little shocked, to see her student, Caroline Kennedy, waiting for her and ready for Bible class. Sister, we were just riding around and we didn't have any place to go, so we came here. I have something to show you, Caroline told Sister Frey as she opened her coat to reveal a big, shiny medal hanging from her neck. Haile Selassie gave it to me, Caroline told her. According to Lawrence Lemer, quote, The nun thought Caroline mentioned the emperor of Ethiopia's name as if she were talking about Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I am sorry so few states have primaries, or we would have a daughter with the greatest vocabulary of any two-year-old in the country. And she did. <laughs> <laughs> then she moved on. Sister, I have to tell you that I did something you asked me not to do. Something I wasn't supposed to do. Caroline worriedly confessed. During the last few days, I just needed something to do, and my mother told me that I could open my religion book. So I went ahead and I did several pages. That's fine, Caroline. Sister Frey reassured her. That's fine. After class, Jackie loaded Caroline and John Jr. up, and they flew to Hyannisport for Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh. Thanksgiving is just a few days after. John Jr.'s birthday, then Thanksgiving. No one expected Jackie for Thanksgiving. So when Rose got the call that she and the kids had just landed at the airport and were on their way, she panicked a bit. Jackie's here. Oh my God. What will we say to her? For a moment, silence was the only answer she received. Then Ted spoke. It's family. She is family still. Thank God she's coming. Joan agreed. No matter how hard it would be to face what had just happened to her, they were the only people with even a glimpse of what she'd lost. Thank God for that, at least. Again, they thought that she would go straight to her house and they probably wouldn't see her until Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. And even that might not happen. Instead, around 8 p.m., there was a knock at the door. Ted answered. It was Jackie. She looked frail and a little lost, but her eyes lit up with the opening of the door. Oh, Teddy, she weakly exclaimed, then hugged him tightly and turned and squeezed Joan. Joan, Joan, I want to tell you everything. I must tell you. It was awful. Just awful. We haven't even had a single chance to talk. Joan, with tears streaming down her face, told her, No, you mustn't say a single word about it. You must try to forget it all now. Come in and sit down. Joan later remembered. My heart went out to her, standing there, 
surrounded by people, but still seeming so alone. I wanted to be there for her, but I didn't know how. I felt a desperation about it. An inadequacy, I guess. I felt that if the tables had been turned, Jackie would have known just what to do. And I wanted to kick myself, because I didn't. Where's Grandpa? Jackie asked. I have to see him. Rose came into the room right about then and hugged Jackie for several seconds. Then she told her that she didn't think it was a good idea for Jackie to see Joe right now. Maybe she didn't think that Joe could handle it. Maybe she didn't think Jackie could handle it. Maybe Rose didn't think she could handle it. But I must, Jackie protested, clearly showing that she was angry about the rejection. You poor, poor dear. Eunice told her. You must rest. I'll rest after I see Grandpa. Now, please. Eunice held one of her arms, and Pat came to the other side of Jackie, and they tried to lead her to the couch. Jackie shook them off, explained that she had left Caroline and John Jr. with Maud Shaw, specifically so that she could speak to Joe Sr. alone. And I'm going upstairs. Enough of this. From upstairs, Rita Dallas. Joe's nurse, remembered, quote, The scene downstairs got so loud that Mr. Kennedy motioned for me to find out what was actually happening. Reluctantly, I went out into the hall and stood there for a moment, trying to figure out what I should do. Just then, the first lady came running up the stairs alone. She ran to Mrs. Dallas with tears in her eyes, hugging a furled flag. Then she handed it to her and explained that it was for Joe Sr., but she just couldn't bring herself to give it to him and asked if she would do it after Jackie left. It was Jack's. I can't do it. I just can't. Then she walked into Joe's room. Jack is gone, she cried to him. And things will never be the same, Grandpa. Never. She caressed his thin skin on his hands and asked if he wanted to hear what happened. Joe nodded. Rita reports that Jackie then told him the entire story, every gruesome detail, from the time she and Jack arrived in Dallas all the way through the funeral. Jackie was at once a Kennedy and not a Kennedy. She held nothing back. Joe stared at the ceiling with tears welling in his eyes as she spoke. When the retelling was over, Jackie kissed his forehead and said, You know how I feel, and how I'll always feel, don't you? She squeezed his hand one more time, pulled the covers up to his chin, and then turned away and left. I have never seen a woman who looked so alone, Mrs. Dallas remembered. After Jackie got back downstairs, she hugged everyone again, and then as she, Rose, and Joan were talking, Jackie noticed something in the corner of her eye. Jack's favorite chair. There, still, was the large bath towel wrapped around the back slats, a home remedy that helped ease his back pain. Jackie walked over to it silently. She touched it gently, crying softly, and then left as quickly as she could. That night, she stayed at her and Jack's Hyannisport home with Miss Shaw and the kids and did not come out the next day. Miss Shaw brought the kids over in the morning for Thanksgiving, 
but Jackie stayed in bed alone. She can't bear it, Miss Shaw told them. She is much too distraught. She didn't sleep a wink. Instead, she cried all night. After dinner, Joan took a plate of turkey, stuffing, sweet potatoes, and cranberry sauce that Rose had made for her. Joan had to get past 10 Secret Service agents just to get to Jackie's door. And then after ringing and waiting and ringing, Joan realized she wouldn't be seeing her sister that day. So she left the plate on her porch. Jackie did reach out to a few people that day. The people who had been there on that day. She wrote to Nellie Connolly, the wife of John Connolly, the governor of Texas, who were both sitting in the front seat of the convertible when the shots rang out. The thing I'm glad about is that on that awful ride to the hospital, we were two women who really loved their husbands, those two brave men. She called the president and ladybird and told LBJ, I'm so sad, but I'm here with all of Jack's things, and it's helping in an odd way. Jackie and Jack. It was complex, sure. But it had been her dream life. And she had loved her husband with every cell of her being and to the pit of her soul. You could not go deep enough into Jackie's core to not find Jack. In fact, it was as if by marrying, these two ambitious people coming together created one whole. With his political savvy and her class, style, and culture, they were the perfect match. She was always aware of his infidelities, particularly with Marilyn Monroe. However, she had long before accepted this flaw as a part of his character and continued to love him in spite of it. She knew only too well that she too had her flaws, and he had accepted her despite them. Without Jack, it was as if Jackie was only half a person. Or at least, that's how it felt to her, once she realized she had to face life alone. Bobby couldn't even bring himself to go to Hyannisport for Thanksgiving that year. Without Jack. I think it wasn't right. He took Ethel and the kids to Florida instead. Ethel remembers him staring off into the sky, not saying a word for hours, and bursting into tears without warning. Shortly after Jack died, Jackie wrote to their friend, Ben Bradley. I want you to know that I consider my life is over, and I will spend the rest of it waiting for it to really be over. The night before the funeral, she had written too to Jack, about their relationship, Caroline and John Jr., who were still with her, and about Arabella, Patrick, and the other babies that were with him now. She wrote to him about their life together and what it had meant to her. She wrote, and she sobbed, and she wrote, pages and pages. She asked the kids to do the same. You must write a letter to Daddy now and tell him how much you love him. Caroline wrote in her own handwriting. Dear Daddy, we're all going to miss you, Daddy. I love you very much, Caroline. John Jr.'s letter was illegible to human eyes. Just scribbles on a paper. 
but his dad, looking down with heavenly eyes, must have known what it meant. The next morning, Jackie had slipped the letters into Jack's coffin, along with a set of cufflinks she had given him. He already had her ring. Bobby slipped in his own relics, a PT-109 tie pin, and a set of engraved rosaries. For herself, Jackie asked Clint Hill, her Secret Service agent, for a pair of scissors. She took a lock of Jack's hair to keep in a drawer and take out on days when she needed him. In the weeks after Jack's death, people, normal, everyday people, all over the world, were grieving the loss of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. They wrote of it to his widow. Jackie received around 800,000 letters addressed to her at the White House in those weeks. The knowledge of the affection in which my husband was held by all of you has sustained me. And the warmth of these tributes is something I shall never forget. Whenever I can bear to, I read them. All his bright light gone from the world. All of you who have written to me know how much we all loved him and that he returned that love in full measure. It is my greatest wish that all of these letters be acknowledged. They will be, but it will take a long time to do so. But I know you will understand. May I thank you again on behalf of my children and of the President's family for the comfort that your letters have brought to us all. Thank you. In the summer, Jackie tried to keep herself and the kids busy. She kept up with their horse lessons and swimming, but it was not a warm summer. Noon was the only time I could sneak away to give Mrs. Kennedy her private lessons. John Linehan, Jackie's coach, remembered. I used to go with her and Caroline and John. They were just buttons at the time. They would bring their little lunches along with them. I would just sit and look at Mrs. Kennedy and listen to her. The tears would just start trickling down her face. Out there, alone, away from everyone, where no one could see. She would talk a lot and cry a lot. She reminisced about her husband and the boats they had gone on. I felt sorry for her. Jackie cried to Kenny O'Donnell one day. Why, oh why did I survive? Why Jack instead of me? Why wasn't I killed? Caroline had changed from the innocent, docile little girl to a furious teenager with so much bitterness about her father's assassination that she often walked around with clenched fists and spoke about it with adult anger. I've never thought about this before, but they didn't just lose their dad. They also lost their future siblings. It's awful. There's a lot to be angry about there. Something a stranger took from you that they shouldn't be able to take. Yeah, and it's kind of ambiguous. Like, it's not super clear, you know? Like, to absorb as a kid. Like you said, he just got on the plane one day and then just never came back. Jackie reached out to a prominent therapist who did help quite a bit, but it was years before Caroline was able to wrap her mind around the senseless murder of her father. And Caroline is six at this point, right? Yeah, and John Jr. is three. Jackie was so distraught that she at one point discussed sending Caroline and John Jr. 
to live with Bobby and Ethel because she felt she couldn't be the mom she wanted them to have. In a sober moment, she decided that would not be better for them. They could have sleepovers when she needed extra help. Jean was the Kennedy sister that Jackie became the closest to after Jack died. They spent endless hours together each week, organizing, planning, designing, and talking to architects for their new project. The John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. Jean's husband, Steve, was the lead on it. It was a gift to the public, a tribute to Jack, but it was also for them. To spend more time with each other and a bit more time with Jack. For Pat, it was simply too much. Her nerves were raw and open, her resiliency gone, and a darkness descended on her that never fully lifted. For Bobby, it was worse. He was haunted by the thought that perhaps it had been one of his campaigns, his fight against organized crime, Castro, or corrupt unions that had brought on the death of his brother. The afternoon of the assassination, he had blurted out, I thought they would get one of us, but I thought it would be me. One night, back home at Hickory Hill, he was talking to someone they had over for dinner, telling them how much he missed his brother. There was never anyone quite like Jack. Nobody. That was the truth. And his best friend needed to talk about it. But in the Kennedy family, with death, they always went on. And so, in the heavy silence, Ethel piped up from the other side of the table and told him, We don't have to worry. We know that Jack is up there in heaven, Bobby, and he's looking down on us and taking care of everything. Bobby looked at her, dejected. He was hurt. It was as if she didn't see him or wouldn't look. Those words were spoken by the wife of the Attorney General of the United States. And that hurt. Rose never spoke to Bobby about it. About Jack dying? They never talked about it. They never spoke about it. My gosh. Rose was terrified to do it. Yep. Each of the Kennedy siblings were grieving, but each had been raised by Rose. And it wasn't easy to talk about. They just didn't. But there was one who would talk about it. (laughs) Jackie had to talk about it, was hurting as much as Bobby, who did have the coping skills in place. Yep, Jackie. Dr. Max Jacobson was called to her home one day and, quote, with eyes wide open, gazing at the wall. He remembered she told him that life had become empty and meaningless. Then, after 45 minutes of talking and an injection or two of Jack's favorite tonic, she said, I hear Bobby coming up the stairs. Please leave through this door. Bobby was a moralist. (laughs) Bobby comes up the stairs. Dr. Max Jacobson, please leave through the back stairwell. (laughs) Mimi Alford, Go to the back bedroom and hide. (laughs) Bobby was a moralist. Jackie may have been hiding the meth, but she didn't hide at all how she felt about Jack's death. The day it happened, she refused to change out of her blood-soaked pink suit, and now she was just as honest. 
during the worst time of each of their lives, Bobby and Jackie had each other. There was nothing lower than this. It wasn't romantic. It was what it was. A brother and a wife who had lost the person that meant the most to them. The person their lives were shaped around. This wasn't just losing a brother or just losing a husband. That is already one of the worst things that can happen to a person. This was also losing a very large part of themselves. Both Bobby and Jackie were who they were because of Jack. They had the opportunities they had because of Jack. They had the lives they had because of Jack. They had the identities that they had because of Jack. Bobby was getting the bad guys like he'd always wanted to because of Jack. Jackie was the powerful woman. Quote, Queen of the circus, and though admired by the world's greatest men, married the man on the flying trapeze. Like she had dreamed as a little girl. Because of Jack. They had the time of their lives with each other. And he loved them. And they loved him. They were bonded to Jack with a profundity that mere blood or a ring seemed insufficient to describe. When they lost Jack, it felt like they lost everything. They lost their soulmate. Bobby had two soulmates, Ethel and Jack. Back in 1960, just after Jack had been officially elected as the next president of the United States, Jack and Jackie had given Bobby a special present. A one-of-a-kind, leather-bound copy of his book, The Enemy Within. Is this the one that Ethel wanted Marilyn to play her in the movie? (laughs) Yep. It's Bobby's book about his time as chief of the U.S. Senate Select Committee taking down corruption and organized crime. In the book, he revealed that the corrupt Teamsters Labor Union was the most powerful organization in the United States, second only to the U.S. government. Oh my gosh. It was a very brave, very bold book from a very brave, very bold man. And they were proud and grateful. In it, Jack wrote, For Bobby, the brother within who made the easy difficult. Teasing him about the presidential election campaign that they had just won. Jackie wrote, To Bobby, who made the impossible possible and changed all our lives. Why? Oh, because he loved his brother. (laughs) My gosh, that feels like so long ago. Ugh, Bobby. Okay, now I'm crying. This was now the deepest of wounds. They had plans together. They had fought together. It was the adventure of a lifetime. And now it was over. When they had only just begun. There were countless more memories to be made, children to be had, and years to watch the sun set on. But now, it was all shattered. 
There was nothing they could do to get it back, and the shards of glass pushed deeper into their flesh with every movement and every memory. So, they read poetry, cried, and sat by the fire together. They mourned, together, what they would never get back. The life and the bond and the understanding and the best friend and the unconditional joy and the highs and the love they could never have again. It was for Caroline and John Jr. that she moved on. Bobby suggested it, actually. Told her he suggested New York over D.C. Ethel actually tried to convince Jackie to move in with them at Hickory Hill, but Bobby suggested New York. (laughs) And Jackie agreed. There's only one thing to do now, she told Pierre Salinger. Save my children. They've got to grow up without thinking back at their father's murder. They've got to grow up intelligently, attuned to life in a very important way. And that's the way I want to live my life, too. And it was time for Bobby to move on too. Not away from D.C. and political life, but forward into a life in which he would be the candidate. Jackie knew what he had been through. She knew how deeply his wounds had pierced, and she knew what he needed to do. It was a most feeling letter in which she implored him not to give up, not to quit remembered Lem Billings. She told him she needed him and that the children, especially John Jr., needed him as a surrogate father, somebody they could turn to now that their own father was gone. Jackie also wrote that the country needed Bobby and that the time had come to honor Jack's memory rather than continue to mourn it. To the media, she said, Bobby is a man for whom I put my hand in a fire. Rose reflected this about her third son. Although by this time, Bobby knew all the ins and outs and behind-the-scene techniques of politics, he had never himself run for public office, never been a candidate in a way that would oblige him to come through to the general public as a personality, and he was not overly endowed by nature and temperament for that different role. It hadn't been his style, and he had never had a reason until then to develop it. He took on the challenge, but not entirely happily and not easily. It did offer him purpose, though. And in such a lost, directionless time, it was stability, a path to walk. It was also the way in which he could feel the most close to his brother. And that was a pretty big weighing factor. But actually, being the candidate, that was for Jack. Well, Really, it was for Joe Jr. and Ted, but Jack did a pretty convincing job. Bobby wasn't at all like Jack or any of them, but he did know that he had something to contribute. And in fact, the innately talented and successful had a responsibility to help them. Exactly. John Kennedy was a realist disguised as a romantic. Robert Kennedy was a romantic, stubbornly disguised as a realist. Arthur Schlesinger. Schlesinger. She still doesn't know. (laughs) 
1964, not a year after losing his brother, Bobby decided to go for it. To go where he could make a difference. To run for the New York Senate. He pulled out many of his strategies that he had crafted for his brother and applied them to himself. Address the elephant in the room. At a campaign event, a reporter asked, Aren't you really using New York State as a kind of jumping-off place for your own presidential ambitions? First, let me say. (laughs) First, let me say, I really have two choices. Over the period of the last 10 months, I could have retired. My father has done very well, and I could have lived off him. Frankly, I don't need the title because I could be called general, I understand, for the rest of my life. And I don't need the money, and I don't need the office space. So I would just, I mean frank as it is, and maybe it's difficult to understand in the state of New York, I'd just like to be a good United States senator. I'd like to serve. Now, after being elected, Bobby and Ted were side by side. And in fact, Bobby was looking to his baby brother for direction. A new thing. And now, instead of Bobby telling Ted what a fool he had made of himself... (laughs) Ted got a few humorous stories of Bobby to add to his repertoire. Like the time Bobby was late to a Senate vote. Quote, He looked over at me from his seat to see how I was voting. I looked back at him, not understanding what he wanted. He kept looking at me and finally shook his head as if to ask, Is the vote no? I got it. I nodded back at him, meaning, Yes, the vote is no. But Bobby thought I meant, The vote is yes. So Bobby voted yes. I then voted no. Bobby then shook his head no in agreement, he thought, with the vote no. But I thought he meant, no, I'm not voting no. So I vigorously nodded my head yes as if to say, yes, you are supposed to vote no. Bobby shook his head, changed his vote to no. That's just the best. The best thing I've ever heard. It's literally two little kids in a classroom together, like trying to talk without the teacher seeing who's on first, but Uh. in the United States Senate. (laughs) (laughs) Not since 1803 had brothers served simultaneously in the Senate. Ooh, that's a minisode. A few months before Dallas, on March 5th, 1963. Jack had invited the National Congress of American Indians to come to the White House and met with them in the Rose Garden. It was one of their new agendas for the executive branch. Jack was probably spurred on a bit by Bobby, but they were both eager to get more education into Native communities and create more jobs that would be sustainable over time. Then, that September, just two months before Dallas, Bobby had visited Bismarck, North Dakota to meet again with the Native American leaders. Now, even after his brother was gone and no longer in the Oval Office, Bobby wanted them to know that he had not forgotten them and even in his heartache, remembered their plight. In 1965, he traveled again and gave a speech at the Grand Pacific Hotel. He spoke to them about what was on his heart and in his mind the need of moving their country forward, quote, toward the fulfillment of its destiny as the land of the free, a nation in which neither Indians nor any other racial or religious minority will live in underprivilege. 
Afterward, the leaders presented Bobby with a war bonnet, placed it on his head, and made him an honorary Sioux, giving him the warrior name Braveheart. He needed that these days. Chris Matthews described that in 1965, Bobby was a soldier who had returned from war. Half his weight. Nothing looked, tasted, or felt the same. And it never would. And Bobby knew that. The world knew it. In March, Canada announced that it was dedicating the country's highest unclimbed mountain to Jack, christening it Mount Kennedy. Upon hearing this news, National Geographic decided to sponsor an expedition to the summit and invited Bobby to be the first to trek to the summit of Mount Kennedy. He had no experience climbing mountains, but he was going to be the first one to ever step foot on the piece of earth that had been dedicated to Jack. Later, 4,536 streets, 142 high schools, and 356 airports would be dedicated to JFK. Little to Bobby's knowledge. (laughs) But hey, he climbed the first mountain. In fact, James Whitaker, the first American to ever conquer Mount Everest, escorted Bobby personally for Jack. On the last 50 yards, the others stood back so that Bobby could reach the summit first and alone. He had to be unroped to do this. When he got to the top, Bobby fell down to his knees and completely alone talked to God and talked to his brother. For several minutes, it was just the three of them, the snow, and the wind. I planted President Kennedy's family flag on the summit, Bobby told Life magazine for their cover story. It was done with mixed emotion and with a feeling of pain that the events of 16 months and two days before had made it necessary. He also left a copy of Jack's inaugural address before making the sign of the cross and then calling to the other climbers to join him. Bobby said that Jack would have been greatly pleased by the view from up there. When he got to the base of the mountain, he had steak, instant mashed potatoes, and ice cream. (laughs) Then he bought a round for everyone in the local bar. The owner told him that he wanted to keep the receipt if he didn't mind. He framed it. (laughs) I told him I wanted to keep it as a souvenir of the next president of the United States. Oh my gosh. When Bobby got back to solid ground, back to Capitol Hill, he looked around and realized that poverty was his brother's last unfinished work. He had squashed World War III and avoided the nuclear bombs, created rights for the disabled, forwarded the civil rights movement, called for expedition into space, sent a Peace Corps to unite the countries of the world. But there were still hungry kids in the backyard. As senator of New York, the way that he went into the Delta of Mississippi, he voyaged into the tenements of Bedford-Stuyvesant. He spoke quietly, asking Dillard why he wasn't in school and what he had eaten that day. Molasses. This was a forgotten place in the most densely populated city in America. The people lived depressed with broken windows and no books. They lived without hope. 
one of Bobby's staff that worked for him while he was senator, said he got a call from a mom in bed that said her baby couldn't sleep because the rats were eating her baby's toes every night. Bobby got the landlord to hire an exterminator for the next day. Anyone could call him. Bobby would listen, and he would act. He initiated several new projects during his time serving the state of New York, including aid for underprivileged children and students with disabilities. The Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation was groundbreaking. It was created to improve living conditions and employment opportunities in the forgotten neighborhoods of Brooklyn. And since 1967, it has been used as a model for communities all across the nation. He used legislation to encourage private business to locate in poverty-stricken areas, creating jobs for the unemployed, and stressed the importance of work over welfare. He didn't just give people a glass of water. Bobby intended to reroute the river through their streets. He built new jobs, new infrastructure, and put in new windows. One of his goals was to expose the facts about poverty in their own country to the American people at large. He went into the urban ghettos, to Appalachia, and to the migrant workers' camps in California. There are children in the Mississippi Delta, he said, whose bellies are swollen with hunger. Many of them cannot go to school because they have no clothes or shoes. These conditions are not confined to rural Mississippi. They exist in dark tenements in Washington, D.C., within sight of the Capitol, in Harlem, in Southside Chicago. There are children in each of these areas who have never been to school, never seen a doctor or a dentist. There are children who have never heard conversation in their homes, never read or even seen a book. Do something for these children. Do something. In 1966, he spoke to South African students. At the heart of that Western freedom and democracy is the belief that the individual man, the child of God, is the touchstone of value and all society, all groups and states exist for that person's benefit. Therefore, the enlargement of liberty for individual human beings must be the supreme goal and the abiding practice of any Western society. For two centuries, my own country has struggled to overcome the self-imposed handicap of prejudice and discrimination based on nationality, on social class or race, discrimination profoundly repugnant to the theory and to the command of our Constitution. Even as my father grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, signs told him that no Irish need apply. Two generations later, President Kennedy became the first Irish Catholic and the first Catholic to head the nation. But how many men of ability had, before 1961, been denied the opportunity to contribute to the nation's progress because they were Catholic or because they were of Irish extraction? How many sons of Italian or Jewish or Polish parents slumbered in the slums, untaught, unlearned, their potential lost forever to our nation and to the human race? Even today, what price will we pay before we have assured full opportunity to millions of Negro Americans? There is said an Italian philosopher, nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. 
Yet this is the measure of the task of your generation, and the road is strewn with many dangers. First is the danger of futility. The belief that there is nothing one man or one woman can do against the enormous array of the world's ills. Against misery, against ignorance, or injustice and violence. Yet many of the world's great movements, of thought and action, have flowed from the work of a single man. A young monk began the Protestant Reformation. A young general extended an empire from Macedonia to the borders of the earth. And a young woman reclaimed the territory of France. It was a young Italian explorer who discovered the New World, and a 32-year-old Thomas Jefferson who proclaimed that all men are created equal. Give me a place to stand, said Archimedes, and I will move the world. These men moved the world, and so can we all. Few will have the greatness to bend history, but each of us can work to change a small portion of the events, and in the total of all of these acts will be written the history of this generation. Thousands of Peace Corps volunteers are making a difference in the isolated villages and the city slums of dozens of countries. Thousands of unknown men and women in Europe resisted the occupation of the Nazis, and many died, but all added to the ultimate strength and freedom of their countries. It is from numberless diverse acts of courage, such as these, that the belief that human history is thus shaped. Each time a man stands up for an ideal, or acts to improve the lot of others, or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope, and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. The second danger is that of expediency, that hopes and beliefs must bend before immediate necessities. Of course, if we must act effectively, we must deal with the world as it is. We must get things done. But if there was one thing that President Kennedy stood for that touched the most profound feeling of young people across the world, it was the belief that idealism, high aspiration, and deep convictions are not incompatible with the most practical and efficient of programs. That there is no basic inconsistency between ideals and realistic possibilities. No separation between the deepest desires of the heart and of mind and the rational application of human effort to human problems. It is not realistic or hard-headed to solve problems and take action unguided by the ultimate moral aims and values. Although we all know some who claim that it is so. In my judgment, it is thoughtless folly. For it ignores the realities of human faith and of passion and of belief. Forces ultimately more powerful than all the calculations of our economists or of our generals. Of course, to adhere to standards, to idealism, to vision in the face of immediate dangers takes great courage and takes self-confidence. But we also know that only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. A third danger is timidity. Few men are willing to brave the disposal of their fellows, the censure of their colleagues, the wrath of their society. Moral courage is a rarer commodity than bravery in battle or great intelligence. Yet it is the one essential, vital, quality for those who seek to change the world, which yields most painfully to change. Aristotle tells us, At the Olympic Games, it is not the finest or the strongest men who are crowned, but those who enter the lists. So too, in the life of the honorable and the good, it is they who act rightly who win the prize. I believe that in this generation, 
those with the courage to enter the conflict will find themselves with companions in every corner of the world. For the fortunate among us, the fourth danger is comfort. The temptation to follow the easy and familiar path of personal ambition and financial success so grandly spread before those who have the privilege of an education. But that is not the road history has marked out for us. There is a Chinese curse which says, may he live in interesting times. Like it or not, we live in interesting times. They are times of danger and uncertainty, but they are also the most creative of any time in the history of mankind. And everyone here will ultimately be judged, will ultimately judge himself on the effort he has contributed to building a new world society and the extent of which his ideals and goals have shaped that effort. Each of us have our own work to do. I know at times you must feel very alone with your problems and with your difficulties. But I want to say how impressed I am with what you stand for and for the effort you are making. And I say this not just for myself, but for men and women all over the world. And I hope you will often take heart from the knowledge that you are joined with your fellow young people in every land, they struggling with their problems and you with yours, but all joined in a common purpose that like the young people of my own country and of every country that I have visited, you are all in many ways more closely united to the brothers of your time than to the older generation in any of these nations. You are determined to build a better future. President Kennedy was speaking to the young people of America, but beyond them, to young people everywhere when he said, the energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And he added, with a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history, the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth and lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Thank you. In case you're not sure where you've heard that before, on January 20th, 1961, it was part of Jack's inaugural address. Always thinking about his brother. By early spring of 1968, Bobby still hadn't decided whether or not he would run for the presidency. Jackie and Ted were very strongly opposed to it. Ethel was very strongly in favor of it. It had been her dream for years for Bobby to be president and her the first lady. All of the Kennedy women were for it, actually. Just not Jackie. Not the woman who was splattered with her husband's brain matter in the back of a convertible on a bright, sunshiny day in Dallas, Texas. She thought the idea was chilling. Nauseating. Ted vehemently agreed. Adam Walensky, Bobby's legislative assistant, knew from being around Bobby that whether he got to be president or not, it had been the most fun before, when John Kennedy had been president, and that he would never be that young again, that he would never have that kind of joy again. But everyone could see that Bobby had a lot to offer the country, 
and the Kennedys hadn't been able to finish their job five years ago. There was so much more to do and a lot left in the Kennedy tank. Besides, once you've been in the Oval Office, most other things feel a bit futile. Same reason Jack ran for president, remember? Mm-hmm. As a senator or a congressman, you can work for two years on something and have it thrown out by the president in one day with one stroke of a pen. Bobby was undecided for so long that if he did decide to do it, he would be late to even enter most of the primaries. So he was afraid jumping in may split Democratic voters and just hand the presidency straight to a united Republican Party. It was Ethel, in the end, who convinced him that the country would elect him. So let them. It was around the same time that they learned they would be welcoming an 11th baby to their family. On Saturday, March 16th, 1968, Bobby Kennedy showed up at the same venue that his brother had eight years before and announced that another Kennedy would be running for president. Eventually, once Bobby had made up his mind that he was going for it, Jackie gave her support. Ted was the one person who never wanted it. We weren't that far away from 63, and that was still very much a factor. He'd always been afraid that his brother wouldn't survive losing Jack. But when people came to Bobby, as they did, saying, you can change this, you can do it, he felt an obligation. Ted Kennedy remembered. It was not just the war, it was how the war was propelling the direction of America, especially the young people, the underprivileged, the underserved, those struggling for their civil rights. It was the inflaming of the cities and the failure to deal with the root causes of the flames. He knew he could help them. He knew he had a responsibility to help them, to do something for these people. Our young people, the best educated and the best comforted in our history, turned from the Peace Corps and the public commitment of a few years ago to lives of disengagement and despair. Many of them turned on with drugs and turned off on America. And that was never all right with Bobby Kennedy. So, he went. He went to the towns and to the cities, and he spoke of the Mississippi Delta, of the black ghettos in bed of the Hispanic farm slaves in Southern California the Native Americans on reservations without aid, and the forgotten people of Appalachia. He told people about the unacceptable parts of America. This was the heartbreak tour. Then, while preparing to speak to the people of the inner city of Indianapolis, Bobby got word of a tragedy. John Lewis, the civil rights activist, had joined Bobby's campaign, and this night was one of the rallies that he had organized. There were some people saying that maybe he shouldn't come because maybe there would be violence. But some of us said he must come. Bobby agreed. The police that were going to escort Bobby's motorcade 
refused to enter the black neighborhood after hearing the news. Which meant that Bobby and John and the campaign staff were on their own. What am I going to say? Bobby thought out loud on the drive-in. As he climbed on top of a pickup truck, you can hear on the footage of that evening, he asks, Do they know about Martin Luther King? It's obvious by their excitement over Bobby's presence that they don't. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby went right in to address them and address the tragedy. No notes, just thoughts from the heart. I'm only going to talk to you for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. And I think sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. There was a large gasp, much of the crowd altogether, but some people didn't hear or didn't understand what he said or couldn't process it yet. And so some people were still whooping and cheering and clapping for Bobby's appearance. He continued. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. Finally, the crowd fell silent. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it is perhaps well to ask what kind of nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in great polarization. Black people amongst black, white people amongst white, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and to replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand with compassion and love. For those of you who are black and who are tempted to be filled with hatred and distrust at the injustice of such an act against all white people, I can only say that I feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poet was Aeschylus. He wrote, In our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence or lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or they be black. So I shall ask you tonight to return home, to say a prayer for the family of Martin Luther King. That's true. But more importantly, say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love. A prayer for understanding and that compassion of which I spoke. We can do well in this country. 
We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past. We will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness. It's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings who abide in our land. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Then he dismounted from the truck and went home. This was the only time he ever publicly spoke of Jack's death. He won the Indiana primary after that. He knew he had found his message. The only thing he could say. People are being treated unjustly. And I vow to help fix that. But every person also has a responsibility to contribute. I've proved I can really be a leader of a broad spectrum. I can be a bridge between blacks and whites without stepping back from my positions. When Bobby Kennedy arrived in California in June of 1968, he rode in an open convertible down the neighborhood streets. Like always, his clothes were grabbed and pulled. He lost every cufflink he ever wore, and he was soaked with sweat. Everybody just wanted to touch Bobby Kennedy. Just once. I will work with all of you, he told them. Give me your help. The sky was bright blue. His and Ethel's black bug-eyed sunglasses matched perfectly. (laughs) And they each had a deep tan and a bright, cheery, buck-teeth smile. People treated him like he was some rock star. It was young people. It was blacks, white, Hispanic, just pulling for him. John Lewis. Even the press was almost at the point of swooning. I'm falling in love with this guy, said Richard Harwood at the time. Knowing his partiality was becoming an issue, he had to request a different assignment. (laughs) Oh my God, I am in love with Bobby (laughs) Kennedy. (laughs) Exactly. I think we're getting partisan. We hadn't quite become cheerleaders, but we were in danger of it. It was also looking more and more likely that he would win California. That was big. Maybe this was really happening. Maybe Bobby Kennedy would be the next president of the United States. The night of June 4th, 1968, with Ethel standing next to him, smiling brightly as always, he addressed a crowd of supporters at his California headquarters, the Ambassador Hotel. I think we can end the divisions within the United States, whether it's between blacks and whites, between the poor and the more affluent, or between age groups, or on the war in Vietnam. We can start to work together. We are a great country, an unselfish country. I intend to make that my basis for running. Then, as Bobby and Ethel Kennedy cut through the kitchen to go back to their room, the sky went black. For the second time, in less than five years, gunshots rang out. Before there were three. 
This time, there were six. Then there was the blood that confirmed it. What made Robert Kennedy unique was that he felt the same empathy for white working men and women as he did for blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans. He thought of cops, waitresses, construction workers, and firefighters as his people. Jack Newfield. Bobby saw himself as a bridge for the American people to reach their neighbors on the other side and see each other's humanity. And then someone who didn't want a bridge took him from all of us. And as his body was carried by train across the country, those construction workers, waitresses, moms, dads, sons, daughters, brothers and sisters, almost two million of them, walked to the train tracks to stand and salute as that train slowly rolled by. To give one final solemn respect to the man that saw them. The man that loved them as they loved him. Bobby Kennedy. During that first trip back to Hyannisport, after Jack was killed, the day after Thanksgiving, Jackie called Life magazine journalist Theodore White. She told him she wanted to say something to the public. I want to say this one thing. It's been almost an obsession with me, Jackie told him. All I keep thinking of is this line from a musical comedy. Jackie was not going to leave the memory of her Jack to be made up by cold, factual historians who didn't even know him. Not really. She would be the one to craft his legacy. For him. For Rose and Joe. For Joe Jr. For Rosemary. For Kick. For Eunice and Pat. For Bobby. For Jean and Teddy. For their children. For herself. For the Kennedys. The very next week, millions of readers understood what Jackie had experienced during her time in the White House. The time she spent married to Jack. Once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. That was his life, really. A quick, bright spark snuffed out much too early. What he accomplished in his short years, what they all accomplished together, those Kennedy siblings, was mammoth. Almost as if they were intentionally created for such a time as this. But what I think Jack and Bobby and Joe Jr. and Eunice and Pat and Teddy and Kick and Rosemary and Jean may tell us if they could give us a message from heaven today, it would be to remind us that according to Luke 12:48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, 
much more will be asked. I believe that Jack believed that this was true. Not a nice idea, but a reality. After all, we know that with a good conscience, our only sure reward. With history, the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion, some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country. But what did it look like behind closed doors, in their homes, the most intimate moments of their time on earth? Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, burned brighter, and then they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, episode 22 from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. The sources for this episode were Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit by Chris Matthews, Jackie, Ethel, and Joan by J. Randy Terraborelli, and The Kennedy Women by Lauren Sleemer. Honorable mention just because, for old time's sake, an unfinished life. John F. Kennedy, 1917-1963, by Robert Dalek. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download. Oh my gosh. That was the last word of the last Kennedy episode ever. I don't believe that. We weren't so tired. <laughs> We'd cry. <laughs> uh. Remember when we sat here and cried over? We did it, Joe. We did it. And figured out that uh, that Mr. Moore, that Mr. Uh, Moore told, no, that Mary Mary Moore Moore told told Eunice that. What happened to Rosemary? What happened to Rosemary? That she got a lobotomy and where she was. And when we figured out. That Teddy literally experienced kick's death, like a simulation of kick's death after he had already lost Jack. And then he loses Bobby. And then we wonder why Chappaquiddick happens, why we wonder why mm-hmm. his freaking life blew up. And remember when Joe Sr. said, 
We don't want losers. We, we want winners. winners. Don't come in here second or third. But win. Kennedys never cry. They will absolutely forgive you for this. It's a great life. If, if you, you don't weaken. weaken. But we'll talk about that next time on Blood and Business.